Straight out of the heart of Texas, here come the students of conflict, helping you become a better Malifaux player and reach the top of the podium, one game at a time. Welcome to Students of Conflict. We are Clay, Nick, and Doug. Hello. Hello there. And we are trying to become better Malifaux players, leveling up ourselves and hopefully leveling others up as well. We normally do that by interviewing top third players from the Lone Star Conference, playing in Malifaux tournaments across the U.S. But sometimes we pull in other players from those tournaments too, like tonight. We are not trying to capture these folks' entire tournament journey. We just want to take an in-depth look at a single game from each of our guests. What were the key decisions that they made before the game, during the game, and now that they're looking back at the game, what were the things that they learned that they can pass on to others? Our basic format is to interview the guests all at once, just as soon as possible after the tournament, where it's still relatively fresh in their minds, and then we can get some good cross-flow between the guests. And then rather than publishing one long marathon podcast, we break it up, releasing one individual podcast per guest, helping people level up one game at a time. Today, we're speaking with Doug and Nate. Hello. Hello again. Again, yeah. This is Doug's first time in the guest chair as opposed to the host chair. So that's super cool. Anyways, these guys came in fourth and first at the Railroad Avenue Rampage, which was held in Bellingham, Washington on the 29th and 30th of April, 2023. And we're going to be releasing our discussions with them as episodes 9A and 9B. And so, Nick, if you could take it away. Thank you. All right. Well, Doug, congratulations for two things. A, you got to play and not T.O., so I'm super happy about that for oh, you, buddy. Oh, man. It was, it was <laughs> weird. It, I, I was a little thrown off, not going to lie. <laughs> and did you have to call for uh, a T.O. assistance during the middle of the tournament? Actually, I did. I, there was oh. at least a couple of times where uh, I think that was – Round two or round three? Yeah, no, because Nate and I played round three, so it was round two where we had to have Ambrose come over and settle some, it's like, hmm, how does that resolve? And uh, yeah, it was, def- I, I enjoyed being the problem for once instead of the solution. There you go. <laughs> awesome. Yeah, and much respect to uh, Ambrose for, for uh, helping one of these uh, veteran TOs here that we have here in Texas. So yeah, Ambrose, he runs a great tournament. I cannot say enough about how much fun I had up in Washington. That's definitely a tournament that uh, he said they're planning on making it around about the same time again, every year. I strongly recommend that you go. It's a great game store, really great community up there. And Ambrose puts together a fantastic tournament. I'm going to try to go back again if I can. I had a blast. Fantastic. Uh, I'm going to need you to peer pressure me into it next year, please. Do it. Do Do it. it. All right. Well, you get to be in the hot seat today, so I get to ask you the icebreaker question. Um, What qualities do you most appreciate in in an opponent? Well, uh, if they let me win, that's obviously the the best one. But (laughs) yeah, no, um, honestly, I would rather lose. I would rather get my ass handed to me by someone I have a fun time with than win a game against someone that is like pulling teeth. And I would say that 
90% of the people I've met in the community are, you know, at least a, hey, this isn't a, you know, drag to play. But when we're able to have a tight, close game, so someone of a pretty comparable skill level that also has a comparable attitude, that they are having a fun time. Honestly, I think my favorite games in like a five-round tournament tend to be game four because by that point, you tend to be sorted out to someone who really matches your skill level. And then if you're lucky, you also play in against someone who is just a fun person to play against. That's what I, I really enjoy is someone who's fun to play against, but who's also a challenge. Fantastic. Now, if they have bad qualities, if buying alcohol, does that solve? Buying me beer always helps. Always helps. Okay. Always helps. But you see, that that happens when I'm the TO. So that softens the TO rulings less than it, you know, softens the uh, the player thing. I thought that was just a you and me thing. Now you're broadcasting it to the world. Hey, <laughs> buy Doug beer at uh, things and it works out well. Ish. Ish, ish, yeah, fair enough. <laughs> well, all right. Well, uh, uh, great answers. Uh, a lot of great things uh, uh, were said and, and worth chewing on at a later date. But uh, we're here to talk about your tournament. And uh, I'd like to talk about what what round uh, are, are we going to be discussing and why? So uh, we are discussing round three from the tournament, which I played against Nate from... Also up in the, you're up in the Washington area yourself, right? Yeah. Yeah. Seattle is Seattle area. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And so we played, uh, so round three and I'm talking about it because, well, it was a tie Mm -hmm. and it was a hard fought tie. Honestly, the entire game, it felt like there were swings back and forth. Oh, yeah. And that uh, even before I knew that we were going to be able to have Nate on the show, I knew that our game was something I wanted to talk about because there were some solid lessons that I learned, even though, you know, I'm, I'm an experienced player, but I don't get to play as competitively as I would like to. But there was just some great, you know, moments in the game that made me go, hmm, right. I need to remember this. Or other moments where I'm like, ha, that worked out well. I feel it is my duty to teach people to pick up on that bit there. Gotcha. Uh, Did you happen to have any uh, 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 rust that you had to knock off uh, when you hit the table playing in a tournament environment? So I had to knock off some of the competitive rust. I went into the tournament planning on playing um, Barkus which is what I like to call Marcus II, the entire time up until the point when I lost a game, at which point then I would start putting shenanigans on the table. I ended up playing Barkus all five rounds because I was in the thick of it. Because even after, you know, going uh, two wins and then a tie, that's still solidly in it at uh, on day two. Uh, especially because then the way everything shook out, there, I, I while I didn't have going into round five, I didn't have striking distance to get first place. I had striking distance to second place, depending on how it shook out. Yeah, 
So didn't get to put the, uh, the my janky shenanigans on the tables, but I had definitely done a bunch of practice with Barkus ahead of time. The competitive speed of things is where I definitely needed to knock off the rust. And this was the first event that I actually was a player in that used uh, chess clocks. Oh, okay. Fantastic. Yeah, because you're usually TOing and making calls. Right. And I've played players. friendly games with chess clocks uh, yeah. when we play them uh, locally. But Ambrose, the wonderful Ambrose, is kind of the dude who has really been pushing to get chess clocks in the Malifaux scene. We had a wonderful episode with him after LVO. And LVO is where he convinced me of the merit of chess clocks. And yeah, I loved playing with them at the tournament. Honestly, every single game I played made it to round five. I can't remember the last tournament I went to where every single round made it to round five, even in a three round tournament. But this was five rounds hitting round five. And there were definitely times where I'm like, oh man, I got almost no time. So I'm like, okay, how many pass tokens do I got? Okay. They activate, pass, <laughs> pass, <laughs> pass. Just holding them in my mm-hmm. hand, just hovering the hand over the clock to make sure I get to activate as late as possible and do my, okay, this guy's got to scoot over there and this guy's got to scoot over there. Okay. And now do the thing that I've actually got to flip cards for. Yeah. But overall by round three, I was pretty comfortable with the the clocks and uh, yeah, I love them. It's, it convinced me even more than I was before. Fantastic. Yeah. And if anybody's interested, Ambrose is a big, uh, proponent for uh, the clocks and the rule system that he put together, which was, I think was a combination of guild ball rules and war machine and kind of put them all together. So uh, uh, kudos to him. And uh, we've been using them in Texas too. I will put uh, the link in the show notes to the rule sheet that I made up for them. Uh, basically Fantastic. I took what uh, Ambrose had made. I made it a little bit pretty cause that's what I do and what you do uh, emphasize the things that uh, the local guys in Texas were wanting emphasized just to make it more obvious there, but that'll be in the show notes. Fantastic. Appreciate that. So obviously you're flying across country. You kind of had an idea of what faction you were going to play. Tell the folks who may not know already, what, what faction uh, did you have planned for this? And, uh, and then maybe just dive into uh, some of the masters that you thought you were uh, going to bring that might have been well-rounded or uh, if you brought your whole kit what what was your plan go, uh, flying across country for a tournament so as flying across country I definitely had to slim down the number of models that I would bring with me because not everything fits in the one uh, hard box case that I would bring with me so the entire time I was planning on doing Neverborn uh, they're the faction that I have the most competitive experience with recently I, as I said before, I was planning on playing uh, Barkus until I lost. At which point I was going to then play my silly, janky, crazy list with, you know, like uh, Titania and Marcus and a dinosaur. Or Zoraida <laughs> and Marcus and the Spawn Mother. Or, you know, various other weird shenanigansy things. Because like, hey, if I'm out of the running... I'm just going to go and play a silly shenanigansy list because that ends up being a lot of fun. Gotcha. But I managed to go, you know, 
two wins and a tie on day one, then one round uh, five, uh, round four. So was Barkus all all Barkus all day? Uh, I did end up. A fun thing was uh, round one. I ended up playing into uh, a a neverborn Barkus mirror match, which was lots of fun. So did Barkus win? Uh, yeah, Barkus won. Fantastic. But then and then round four, I played into an Arcanist. Marcus won. Those two were my two largest uh, uh, differential wins, just because like I I've been playing Barkus for a very long time. And so, yeah, I kind of knew what uh, what Marcus could do and what Mar- Marcus couldn't do. So knew how to play to my strengths and play towards his weaknesses. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, we've got a uh, question from Discord uh, uh, from one Mike, Bell Bib DeVoe Poison. I added the Bell Bib DeVoe because that girl is poison. Mm. 80s references anybody understand that yep clay that girl is poison there we go all right cool i wasn't about to sing it but uh mike states uh our question uh, has a question what gg3 strats do you play marcus one or two and why well honestly i'm comfortable with him in all of the strats i mean i was ready to go for all of those a chimera crew is fantastic for um, carve a path because Arcus has got a leap. You can bring multiple cats that have leaps. And so, you know, having three leaps allows you to, you know, uh, kick the can, leap to it, and kick again. And so you can have, uh, even in corner deployment, you can have it across the center line on turn one. Is there a benefit of one over the other in a carve a path corner? Definitely, definitely Barkus. Honestly, I found that with the way the game state is right now, well, really, I tend to bring Marcus one more if I'm bringing him as a second master because then I'm bringing him for a specific purpose, which is to, I'm mutating beasts I'm not supposed to. And for him to make the most of his, uh, what what's that ability called? The ability where if I, you know, discard an upgrade, my friends get it. Well, if his friends don't have upgrades, you can't really propagate those abilities out there. And so he benefits from having other Chimera models, especially ones that start with upgrades on them, the Order Initiates. He really needs those to get that engine flowing, as opposed to Marcus One, where he's like, hey, you get an upgrade, and now you get an upgrade. And so, and he just gets one at the start of his turn. So that ends up being a um, kind of how I decide if I'm going with Marcus uh, one or if I'm going with Barkus. I suppose there's some scenario where the right strategy pool and uh, scheme pool makes Marcus one by himself better. But right now with... Um, the way the pools are, either they are, I have to get across the board and do some interacting, or I need to hold points. And uh, Barkus 2 feels more adjustable. Okay. Like, um, honestly, Chimera keyword is delightful for, like I said, a Carver Path, fantastic. Uh, with uh, Covert Operations or Guard the Stash, they... Um, 
have got multiple models that uh, have laugh off or planted roots. So you can't knock them off the point. So the, the uh, Slate Ridge Maulers both have laugh off and a two inch engagement range. So they can, they're great for um, uh, covert ops or for guard a stash. And I tend to like to bring the mysterious emissary with uh, Barkus. There's a uh, fun little fun little interaction we can get into later with him, but he's also great at holding points because he has planted roots. Absolutely. And then um, the other one is corrupted idols where they're, when they are able to get to you, the, the beasts hit hard. They just have to manage to survive long enough to get to the uh, to the opponent because they are the most of the beasts are a little bit squishy until they've got a couple of upgrades on them or they're kind of in the thick of it at which point they're getting uh, you know tear off a bite or you know throwing you off your game. And I just want to jump in. You said corrupted idols there, but you meant uh, cursed objects, right? Right, cursed objects. That, okay, not a problem. Things. I was just like, hold on, what? <laughs> cursed <laughs> objects. Okay. Yeah, <laughs> no so, problem. So it's cool. the, you know, kick the cans, you know, having those leaps is wonderful. Um, there's two uh, strategies right now where you need to be on a point and not get knocked off it. So laugh off and planted roots are great with that. And then the other one is kill the crap out of each other. So, <laughs> so there you go. Yeah, you got, you got the beast for that. Not that I want to let Brian back on the podcast again, but Brian has a question from Discord. And he asks, why do you feel that Neverborn Marcus is better than Arcanist Marcus? And do you realize you're wrong? So, (laughs) I would say that uh, Arcanist Marcus 1 is potentially better than Neverborn Marcus 1. But First off, there is more silly shenanigans that I can pull with Marcus as a second master in Neverborn than there is in Arcanists. I can't think of any of the keywords uh, in Arcanists where they happen to have beasts that Marcus can't already hire. Uh, I suppose December, you get the uh, little kitties and they're not that great, but... If you're going with Neverborn, you can bring Titania as your main master, and you get a dinosaur. You can bring Zoraida as your main master, and you get Swamp Fiends, which have Cillarids and Gators and the Swamp Fiend, uh, the Swamp Mother. Which, yeah, the Swamp Mother—that's a silly shenanigansy pick that I was doing because it's silly shenanigans. But um, oh, they also have the Will of the Wisps. And so have those are some fun alternate picks. What it comes to with Barkus is that Barkus puts out severe terrain all around him. And the mysterious emissary has a nasty combo with that, where if you are in severe terrain, it puts you on negative flips. And so Nate, ran, Nate saw that, wasn't expecting that one. Yeah, that was that was rough. Hey, you're in severe terrain. You're on negative flips, which means you can have the most awesome god hand, but unless you can use stones to put you on a positive flip 
or had focus ahead of time, you're not cheating this. And I have the statistical advantage there. And then he can drop hazardous terrain markers underneath your feet, which then Barkas just goes, hey, smack, scoot, smack, scoot, smack, scoot, which turns his already nice two, four, six damage spread into a three, five, seven. And at least I think that's what his damage spread is. Look, I, you know, I'm going to double check so that I'm not full of crap. Nice two, four, six with a two inch push. So it's like, hey, I smack you for two. Awesome. And then I scoot you for one. If you're in that hazardous, it feels rough because it's the, hey, am I, when am I stoning for damage? Well, the big hit and then that little bit more and the big hit, and then that little bit more, and it just whittles people down fast. And that is not a interaction that you can get in the Arcanists. Gotcha. So would you say Barkus is the Perdita 2 of Neverborn? Please, Neverborn has nothing that is even on the level of Perdita 2. Sounds like Barkus is right up that alley. I'm just saying. If you don't know what you're getting into ahead of time with Barkus... And if your opponent isn't upfront about what can happen, there's some gotchas you can have in, in there, such as uh, the wings give butterfly jump. And it's the, hey, but uh, I target you. Okay, I missed. Sweet, I'm scooting away. Yeah. Or, hey, uh, you're in Marcus's bubble of hatred. Well, now the emissary gets the, you get uh, negative flips against him. And that little bubble of uh, hatred, uh, you know, his little severe bubble there, it's also a mini gravity well, so you can't place in it. Mm-hmm. So no flying into there, uh, no leaping into there. It It is uh, rough figuring out all those little things where it's the, oh, the stuff that will save you from it a lot of times is places. And it is uh, shut down a couple of people where like, oh, I didn't realize it worked quite like that. That one definitely got me a little bit. Um, I wanted to ask, on the topic of, of uh, Marcus 1 uh, second master shenanigans, have you been able to leverage the combination of protected beasts on Marcus 1 and the spawn mother's uh, ability to charge out of activation when, when guffs die? I have not had a chance to actually do that yet. Just because okay. getting the guffs out there that that takes a little bit of effort and I keep, you know, my spawn mother doesn't like to flip. Well, yeah, it's, it, she's not yeah. painted yet. I, so once she gets a, a nice coat of paint on her, I think she'll flip better. But until then, you know, she's just not, she isn't convinced that I care for her. <laughs> okay. I've got, I've, I've got a local here who is, getting ready to try doing that kind of thing with uh with marcus i think that sounds like a fun idea the problem i ran into with um that list was that marcus kind of lagged behind a little bit and if i'm able to keep him closer to where those gups are so then he can go hey don't hit me hit the gup that could leverage it a little bit more well, let's get into the game. So what what uh, round are we going to be discussing? So um, we're doing round three, which was deployment was wedge. So aggressive game. Mm-hmm. Uh, strategy was cursed objects. 
The scheme pool was assassinate, sabotage, catch and release, spread them out, and set the trap. And uh, who is your opponent? Which I think we already kind of know. My Nate was the wonderful. Uh, my my Nate was the wonderful Nate. My opponent. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> my opponent was Nate, and they played Von Schill one. Nice. Which may have been a mistake. I think. Hmm, well, yeah. So Von Schill has got. Uh, he's got the, the Von Schill one's the one with diving charge, right? Correct. But Von Schill 2 has Bulldoze, which is also, which is very similar. Is it a place? No, it's a push. They're, they're, they're both push effects. Well, I thought, uh, diving, I... diving charge is still a push. It, it, it just ignores ter- uh, models and terrain. Right. I forgot. Yeah, yeah. That, that didn't end up coming into effect there. It was other place things. Yeah. yeah. The fact that I have Leap it, uh, all over the place in the keyword on an upgrade came into yes, play is more. Rocket, it's the rocket boots the rocket that boots. make me think everyone's jumping everywhere. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, I think there's a really interesting parallel between Von Schill and Marcus because both of the first versions have an action that hands out uh, their upgrades to their crew um, and has some generally some other stuff attached to it. And then both of their second versions uh, pass out the upgrades more passively. Uh, when they get used or discarded. They honestly are both kind of a uh, Thanos putting on the glove. You're like, fine, I'm going to do this myself. He, you know, Von yeah. Schell too. He's fully suited up and ready to rock. Barkus is like, beast mode. Yeah. I just like his comb over. <laughs> Who's comb over? Not yours. <laughs> on chills. I lack hair. <laughs> So, Doug, what was the decision on uh, Barkus instead of Marcus? Uh, that was decided ahead of time. It was okay, the, so. um, I want it, I was, I told myself going in, I'm going to play Barkus every round until I lose, and then shenanigans. Gotcha. And I hadn't lost, so Barkus it is. Because I had also gotten in the, um, the most reps with him. I'd finally gotten, I was very excited to actually get the uh, Barkus model in finally. And so it's like, okay, I'm finally putting him on the table. And uh, he was a model that I'd quickly learned I should not play against beginners locally. Because he can be brutal. And because I play against a lot of the new players when they come to Dragon's Lair, uh, I had to shelve Barkus for a while. But mm-hmm. finally got the model in. I'm like, okay, it's time for his day in the sun. Gotcha, fantastic. Yeah. Um, so any uh, uh, when when you saw Nate bringing um, Outcast and declaring uh, Von Schill, uh, based on the scheme pool and uh, uh, your opponent, uh, what list did you decide on and why? So uh, I ended up going uh, based off the scheme pool. I knew that I needed to make sure it was Killy because we were playing uh, the Cursed Objects. So I didn't need to play a quote-unquote cagey list where it's going to be bring two cats, do a kick, leap, kick sort of thing. But yeah, so I knew I didn't need to be cagey like that. I also knew I didn't need to hold a specific point. And the uh, pool was kind of spread nicely between some Killy stuff and at least one schemey thing. 
And so was the, all right, need to be able to get the schemey stuff. So that was, uh, wanted to bring a cat instead of a bear, because then they can drop a scheme marker, leap, drop another scheme marker, and get spread them out, scored very rapidly. Uh, and I picked Assassinate because I was confident that Barkus and friends could get to Von Schill and do the damage on him. And that while there is healing in uh, the uh, Outcast and especially in Frycore there, I kind of figured that I'd be able to accomplish that. He's not known as a master who is horribly difficult to put down. So uh, that was why I also chose Assassinate. And the terrain on the, the terrain on the board played a major factor in this game, I would say. Absolutely. It was wild. There were all of these um, uh, boardwalks. So they are some of the, the Plastcraft colored bayou walkway things. So there's a bunch of those. And there was a bunch of severe terrain right towards the middle of the board that I was hoping that Nate would send their uh, models into. And they were nice enough to oblige to do that on turn one because wedge deployment. And uh, yeah, so I figured make sure I bring that emissary because of that nasty combo I mentioned there. And then hope to be able to put a lot of damage on the uh, the fry core before they could put me down. Fantastic. Good old Jim Diceman has a question and he says uh when it comes to the mutation upgrades what are your go-to attachments at the start of the game and what kind of spread are you looking for at the by the end of turn two, turn one so when it comes to the uh upgrades uh selection of upgrades ends up very different for marcus one as opposed to barcus because in a barcus crew there is not a action where i specifically go hey you get this upgrade. Now, several of them do have the uh, the aspects of the wild ability where they discard an upgrade and then attach a new one, which that's a good way to early, I discard an upgrade and pass it to someone who doesn't have an upgrade and then I get a new upgrade. So that's, you know, propagating more upgrades out there. That's really a focus of early game uh, round one for Barkus. And so I have to start out with the upgrades on the models. So the, the models that start with upgrades on them are Barkus himself and the two order initiates. Mm-hmm. And so they need to start out with upgrades on them that they want to pass off to someone else. So they, the upgrades I'm starting with on them are upgrades that I don't want them to end up with. So I will frequently, um, I like to have, end up with natural camouflage on the Sabertooth Cerberus uh, because, well, then that's where the Sabertooth Cerberus kind of falls down is that they are not super tough. They are, you know, they're defense five, willpower four. Their main thing is the terrifying. But if you can't target them from more than six inches away and you can't charge them, well, suddenly they are either going to, hey, you're a target, so I'm going to come in there and murder you, or 
well, you can't charge me or target me for more than six inches away. I'm just going to leap away and keep running schemes. And so that gives them that option there. Fantastic. By the end of turn one, I like to have upgrades out on as many people as possible. If the Jackalope doesn't have any upgrades on him by the end of turn one, I've done something wrong. Uh, He needs to have that upgrade because that suddenly makes him much better and much harder to kill. And while he's not significant, he becomes a ridiculous thorn in the side. Oh, he turns something, somebody else's significant model insignificant because it's just a pain in the ass to deal with him. Well, and so uh, Jackalope, it's got the uh, creature, uh, no, it's got the uh, Lamarckian evolution where he increases all of his dual totals by the number of up, uh, mutation upgrades he has attached. So he goes from, you know, his defense goes up, his attacks go up. Heck, if you're targeting his move, it goes up. If you're targeting his size, it goes up. So it increases the stats of all of his duels. Well, that means his normally stat four attack starts uh, loading up a couple of upgrades on him there. Well, now he's getting to a stat six, stat seven. He can potentially get up to a stat eight. Yeah, did I get him up to the stat eight? You did. Yeah. Yeah. And the turn four, I believe, you you put that fourth upgrade on him. Oh. And I was just like, this is just too much to deal with. And one, one of the things with it then is that one of the upgrades, uh, Serrated Teeth and Claws, when you damage someone, it gives Adversary Beast. And so people are like, oh, it's the little insignificant totem. It does, it's a 2-2-3 damage spread. No one cares about that. It's, you know, oh, it is a piddly little bit of damage. But suddenly, hey, he bit you. Oh, it landed? Sweet. Adversary beast. He's not trying to kill you. He's trying to set up the kill for everyone else. And so suddenly that, hey, I got an attack that gives adversary out. And I'm stat 7 or stat 8. Oh, that's not good. (laughs) And he can also, if he's not in, uh, you know, aggro bunny mode, he can be just the world's most pain in the ass Speed bump. I was going to say he's a speed bump that turns into a wall. Yeah, because you you cannot kill. I mean, unless you've got, say, Lantern of Souls. And there's not very many models that actually have that ability. And if they are on the table, the Jackalope stays far away from them. But he can, you know, demise Eternal more than once per turn. And he, yeah, yeah. he's four wounds. Like, oh, I'm going to kill him with an offhand blow. Nope. He's still here. And it just becomes annoying. He occasionally kills something way above his uh, weight class, but mostly it's, he's annoying little uh, pain in the ass. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, thank you, Jim, uh, for the question. Um, as a lot of people know, he's uh, frequently on the other coast. And Jim also frequents on the uh, Breach Burnt podcast. I heard him on there not too long ago. Um, and so definitely check him out there. Um, so thank you again, Jim. Appreciate that. Now, when Von Schill hit the table, deployment zones, deployment, uh, both you and your opponent deployed, what was your game plan to start scoring points based on the deployment and uh, uh, Nate's uh, uh, crew selection and where they were placed? Uh, What was your game plan at the beginning of the game? So my game plan at the beginning of the game was, so I had Assassinate, 
and uh, spread them out. So the plan was for as much of my crew as possible to wait until I kind of saw how Nate sent their crew up the board and then send uh, the uh, cat and a order initiates off to the side to start going to kind of run the flank to go for spread them out and wanted to make sure that my spread them out stuff was a good distance away from Lazarus because Lazarus has that uh, shockwave that can remove scheme markers. And so I wanted to make sure that wherever Lazarus was or wherever was in Lazarus's range, I could get my scheme markers away from them. And that ended up being the kind of run them up the uh, right-hand side of the board for me. Fantastic. Um, Nate, if you don't mind me asking real quick, what was your, what was your crew? Uh, that was, um, yeah, I had, um, I had Von Schild, one with the steam trunk. Um, <clears throat> I had Hannah, um, because I always have Hannah and then, um, understand. Had, yeah. <laughs> and then I had a, uh, an engineer and Yannick Waller. Um, and then following that up with a librarian, um, a Freikor scout and Lazarus. Fantastic. Always a fan of seeing Lazarus on the table. Yeah, I like to find the positions where he's useful. I think that the uh, being able to ignore line of sight for his uh, shockwave on that board, oh, um, yeah. I thought was really, really important. It didn't come into play as much as I'd hoped it would, but it was still a threat that I think was uh, was relevant. Yeah, you ended up playing him up on top of the uh, boardwalk there. Uh, relatively early. So he wasn't really lobbing from behind cover as much. But also you weren't really worrying about hiding from me shooting you because I didn't Correct. have guns. <laughs> yeah. That was part. Of, that was a, bit, a big part of my game plan was I wanted to get set up on that boardwalk and make you come to me because uh, I had the range options, uh, the range advantage over you. Mm -hmm. Appreciate that, Nate. Um, so Doug, during the game, uh, uh, what were some of the, uh, um, what was the pacing like? What were some of the big, um, uh, uh game plays that affected, uh, the outcome of the, of the, of the game, um, that led to a tie? Well, uh, what was interesting and worth noting, uh, during that game? So I think, you know, wedge deployment is generally an aggressive uh, that's an aggressive deployment. It's the closest you can get and get to each other. Especially when it assassinates in the pool. <laughs> you know? Oh, yeah. <laughs> it was an aggressive pool on an aggressive deployment. I kind of waited with some of my more um, killy models to make sure that I saw what Nate did with their crew, kind of see where uh, the models were going to end up. And so. The I think one of the big uh, changing factors in the game that kind of tilted it in my favor early was when Von Schill came up pretty far. He And he ended up, I you can refresh my memory on this a little bit, Nate. I don't remember exactly why he was playing up the board, but he played up the board farther than I expected him to and ended up being in some of the severe terrain that was on the board. Um, so he played... He was actually up on one of the boardwalks at the end of his activation. Okay. Yeah. Um, but but was close enough to the edge that when Marcus leapt, charged, and hit him, 
you, you, you were able to push me off of the boardwalk into the river. Okay, yeah. Um, but the part, part of the reason that he was up as far as he was, was um, I believe he was the model that got the uh, Imperian Eagle off the board turn one. Yes, yeah, the Eagle definitely um, got got very early. Yeah, got, he, got. if I recall correctly, he leapt and then had to find the angle to take out the Eagle with a 14-inch gun. Yeah, I, I I played the eagle up a little bit to put it into range to do. Oh yeah, because the eagle has got its uh vantage point. Its vantage point is that the name of the attack? I should know the. the I don't know. Bonus action that it ignores line of sight. The aerial strike. So the yeah. eagle um played up a little bit early, and I had done the thing where hey, I'm gonna put on the eagle. I'm gonna get a uh, toss an upgrade to the eagle. And the eagle is then going to use its uh, adaptive evolution to get a positive flip and add a suit to it. Uh, Because on its uh, aerial strike attack, it's got a trigger called vantage point that can only be declared against enemies that if I, uh, you know, if I hit them, I get to drop a scheme marker anywhere between my model and their model. And so this has got a 12 inch range. It ignores line of sight, concealment, cover. Yeah, all, all of those wonderful things. Now, it's only a stat four, but getting that positive flip on it, plus building, baking that suit into it, um, I had a decently high card in my hand. So I really wanted to play that up uh, and get that first scheme marker down on the board. Um, I can't remember if I accomplished that or not. But so that meant the eagle was with it uh, up the board and in striking distance of uh, Von Schill faster than I anticipated. <laughs> yeah, but that was all part of your plan, right? Because that drew Von Schill forward, which then you were able to sure. get him with Mark. That sure, was that was part totally of the plan. Pl- Definitely, I would <laughs> say you know if I had really thought about it, it's like yes, he was bait. He wasn't. It just, he happened to be, um, extent, it was a calculated risk to try to get that first scheme marker out there. That way I could score, spread them out on turn two. Cause it's always that, you know, try to get those, um, points off of your schemes early. And I mean, when did I, I'm going to see when did I actually score it turn two? Yeah. So I ended up not being able to score, spread them out until turn three. And so trying to get that extra scheme marker out there early was the play I was going for with it. Gotcha. And the extra benefit was that Von Schill ended up over committing. Yeah. I think that definitely was a misplay on my end. Uh, I, I underestimated just how much damage uh, Barkas could put out. Yeah. I mean, Barkas can put out a ridiculous, I mean, he's got that two, four, six damage spread. Plus, he gives you that little push. Now, at least at that point, he wasn't scooting you around into the hazardous. But after that, he had dropped you into the severe, which Mm. then was in range for the emissary to go, okay, you're on negative, so I'm going to lay into you. And if memory serves me correctly, I got Von Schill down to two or three health. After turn Something one, like that, yeah. He was crazy low. And yeah, assassinates in the pool. But I would rather guarantee the second point of assassinate 
then aim to score the first point and have them heal back up. So I saw the opportunity to go super aggro into um, Von Schill. And yeah, it meant that he was kind of reeling. And then you had uh, Nate had to spend a lot of actions to pull him out of the fire and help him get away and heal him up. And so that's, uh, you know, spending actions to rescue your master is actions you're not putting towards killing me or scoring schemes. So the next turn I was able to then, because uh, by that point, uh, turn two, Nate had gotten Von Schill out of the, you know, he had, uh, there was a puddle of awfulness underneath him because the uh, emissary had dropped some hazardous underneath uh, Von Schill. And so I think it was someone who's got, I've got your back in that crew. Uh, it's on one of the upgrades. Okay. Um, it's on the, the reinforced assault shield. Okay. So he, uh, so uh, they uh, did that to get, you know, uh, Von Schill out of there and up onto the boardwalk. At which point then um, uh, Bark is like, okay, I'm going over there. And, you know, has I think I put wings on him at that point, and he, you know, mm-hmm. leaps and basically he's like, "You can't escape me," and went up there and smacked uh, Von Schill around a whole bunch, and left him at I think maybe one or two wounds there. I managed to score the first point of assassinate there, yeah, and then killed him off on turn three. Yep, and, he didn't get he didn't even get the chance to activate on turn three. Yeah, which, which was a good call. I'm fairly. I think I cheated initiative on that one. You did to go to town with him up there, and so at that point, Barkus was up on top of the uh, boardwalks, really smacking people around. And one of the interesting things that ended up coming into play was the that scoot, because there were times where I hit you, and so it's the damage, and then there's going to be the scoot which they were right on the edge of a three-inch drop. I don't think I ever... I, no, Yannick, I did end up uh, yep. yeeting off because Yannick was left at one. Because of hard to kill, yep. And then scoot and fall. And so Von Schill, I had the opportunity to do that, but he managed to spike into a higher damage. And so that is a uh, recognizing that, yeah, a push on a move from a high height is, you know, hey, that could be potential damage or you scoot them around inside of uh, some hazardous. And a lot of, t- it's rare that, yeah, I actually see terrain that I can, you know, yeet someone off of. So that was fun. But it was, it did leave uh, Barkus a little bit more vulnerable. And that's when Nate started to really whittle down um, a Barkus. And uh, they ended up getting uh, assassinate. Yes, you got the the first point of assassinate on turn three. Yep. And from there on out, Barkus was kind of on the defensive, trying to run away more and maybe go help do the uh, spread them out or trying to hunt down some cursed objects. I believe I had killed Miranda on turn three as well. Yeah, yeah, and he didn't have any healing left. Oh, okay. So that was um, a solid play there to say, okay, 
take down Miranda while Marcus is outside of range of that. Because Marcus, it was the, hey, he's going for that calculated risk to get the kill. And he just wasn't able to get people caught up. And then Miranda went down instead of going after Marcus. And then Miranda coming up and saying, hey, heal, heal, heal. Because Miranda's heal is... Or you'd be the best in the game. Yeah, because I mean, because she's got a one, three, four heal, but gets a positive flip on the healing for every upgrade that is on the model, the beast she's healing. So you spike into that moderate or severe heal a lot of the time. If she's able to get two heals off, Barkus is practically back to full. And uh, I wanted to ask, this is potentially a stupid question, but within the, the Marcus crew, within, um, yeah, what, what kind of anti-armor exists, I guess? Or are you just counting on the armor one, just everything is de- is down one? Um. Yeah, I did not have anything at all in that crew that was anti-armor. Okay. I wasn't it was sure, more but... the um, kind of counting on the... Because armor only reduces to one, not to zero. Yeah. Um, that was, you know, hey, I'm dropping hazardous terrain out there. So they're always going to take that plink of one. But that, uh, so that sort of stuff. And then it was just putting big damage out there. Because like I said, uh, Bark has, can, has got that two, four, six. But that yeah. 246 can turn into, if he's got a fully loaded uh, Chimera Strike on him there, that can turn into a 468 damage spread. Them's Hannah numbers. Yeah. And so as a as a 357, five, you know, whatever, doesn't really matter, you know? It's right. A, yeah. If there, so no, that makes armor sense. only protects you so much. Yeah, exactly. And so that was kind of... Knowing that, yeah, I don't have anti-armor, but yeah, just power through it. And yeah, power through it and, and 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 get as much ping damage as possible from the head. And with okay. the amount I... of uh, severe that was on the board, it was the, all right, there's going to be a lot of places where they're going to have to pass through some severe terrain. And the emissary is going to go, hey, you're on negative. For you. And now you're <laughs> in hazardous. <laughs> Now, okay. one very solid thing that uh, Nate did was with I th- yeah it was with um, Von Schill's melee action where he picks someone up and yeets them. He did oh. yeet at least one of my models into my own hazardous. Yes, that had to feel pretty good, Nate. Oh, I, I the pull trigger is probably one of my favorite triggers in the game for a lot of reasons. <laughs> um, I do that in Von Schill with the landmines a lot. Oh, yeah. Um, oh, yeah. I also do, when I play Eric, which is moderately often, I'm not the biggest Eric fan, but when I play Eric, I can. Uh, he has the same two-inch push on his melee. Mm, mm-hmm. um, and so you can you can play, uh, but he's with that, with, with the two-inch push, he's also, he's also min three. So he can play the, the uh, what is that, four, six, eight damage yeah, track the, game? The, the smack and scoot one, it's not even just a four, six, eight. It's a three plus one. Yeah. Because that is... It's huge. It gets around a lot of defensive abilities. Because, oh, you got armor? Three plus one. Oh, yeah. you got shielded? Well, that's going to plink that other one down there. Yeah. Oh, and the whole, like, oh, you want a stone for the three? Sure. But do you want a stone for the one? 
Probably not, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know. Yeah. And that ends up <laughs> right. fe- that so that it makes for a tough decision there. So I love things that drop hazardous terrain. Fantastic. But yeah, I oh. I love the pool tree. It's also it's so cinem it's it's a cinematic trigger. It is. You just it like is. you just see him just hucking him and then whipping out his gun and going ka-choom. Yep. You just you're just skeet shooting at that point. I love it. It just it I mean, I don't love it when my models get chucked like that, but it's still it, it's a fun moment in the game. That's one of those very thematic triggers that I love. And if I may discuss the the other use that I did pull off in this game of pull, uh, is when you use it on your own models um, to throw them up the board. Yes, and that happened on I believe turn four in this game because Lazarus also has the pull trigger on his melee. Um, and so I was able to use Lazarus to throw one of my models almost yeah, you, full you six. Yeah, you the scout, it's, right? Yeah, because it's, yeah. it, it's five inches plus base size. So oh. it's a pseudo leap. I love it. Generally, it costs one one health because of armor. Yeah. Yeah. And that honestly, doing that effectively led to the situation that you know, I'll, the, that I'll discuss here. So, uh, Turn five, the other really major point in the game that mm-hmm. was, felt like a turning point. Because honestly, it was close. It, it We kind of went back and forth on scoring the points. And I figured, you know, eventually Barkus might die. I, I hoped that he'd last because of Miranda. But taking down Miranda early was a great play with that. And then Barkus just couldn't weather the storm after that. He still did a lot of work, but eventually he got whittled down bit by bit to just not be able to take it anymore. He eventually got handed. <laughs> you ended up killing him off like because you got the first point of assassinate on turn three there. Yep. Yeah, I think you killed him off turn five. No, was I, I, it late turn four or early turn five? I think it was early turn five. Okay, because I don't think he activated that. Turn. No. But it was no, he the... Didn't. He lasted as long as he could, and it took effort to put him down, but he just didn't have what it took to weather the storm. And no matter how many stones you have, whatever your defense is, if they turn their entire crew pointed at you, it's going to die eventually. It's going to die. But the big thing that happened, because Lazarus chucked the scout up the board, so the scout was then going to go run to get that because uh, you had spread them out, right? Yeah, we, we picked the same schemes. Yes, yes, we did. And you, so you, yeah, didn't end up scoring, spread them out until the final turn. Yeah. So that was the scout had to get hooked up the board to get the uh, spread them out. And was really the last model on the board that had a cursed object token on it that I could reasonably kill. Because there were a few other models that had cursed object tokens on them, but just the math added up to I'm not going to be able to kill them off. But when Nate goes and hucks that scout up the board, the jacked up jackalope was like, oh man, I got to hunt him down. But because the scout had that extra move up the board, instead of the jackalope leaping and attacking twice, it had to leap, walk, charge. And at this point, the jackalope had a stat eight. 
the scout had one wound left. Yep. <laughs> and so the jackalope is the the scout doesn't have you know uh, the scout only has armor one. Jackalope's got a damage spread of two, two, three. So if I can hit, it will kill him. In theory, there. And it was like, all right, you know what? The, he's stat eight. The uh, the scout, they're what defense five, right? Yeah, the stat five. And I had, I had a solid hand there, and so you know has to leap, walk, and then charge. Hits the the scout. Sweet. Black Joker's the damage. Oh, yep. And it's just that moment of the. I had nothing else that could get in range of the scout to do any more damage. I'm like, I'm looking at all of the different, you know, measuring and seeing, like, yo, if the guy, if he walks around this way, can he? And it was just, Nate made sure that the scout stayed, did not set a toe in the river that was right there nearby. He had his toe just outside of the river so that the emissary couldn't charge the river and then take a swing on it with the, uh, the tangling roots. Where if they're uh, in a uh, the same piece of severe terrain as you, you can just swing at them anywhere. And so if Nate had scooted their scout half a centimeter differently, the emissary could have charged that, uh, that river. But they knew not to do that. They had figured yep. that out, that it's like, well, <laughs> he, he may not be in range to shoot you with it to get you with the uh, roots from below but there is movement six so if it's you know walk and charge and get into the same piece of terrain he can get that swing on you knew not to do that <laughs> i've played against enough wall guys the the emissary is kind of like you know granddaddy waldgeist he's you know yeah. super waldgeist and so that was solid placement on nate's part and understanding what I needed to do to score that point because there was no one else on the board that I could reasonably put enough damage into to score that uh, cursed object point. And the scout needed to go run and drop a scheme marker. And so it's that, that one ability there. It's like, Oh, it's like, well, if I just don't flip the black Joker and I totally thought I didn't say it out loud. Because you'd, you'd never say that out loud. Yeah. I said it in my head. Jeez, and then the Black yeah. Joker came up. <laughs> and now one major lesson to teach on this is not because there's everyone at some point runs into a point in the game where they say, oh, I lost the game or I tied the game because I flipped the Black Joker on this critical thing. And that was the first thought I had. But if you, uh, you know, take a step back and think about what it is there. Is that if I had literally done one more attack on the scout. It would have been dead. It wouldn't have been able to get yeeted. I would have been able to score that point or it would have been, you know, damaged to the point where uh, Nate wasn't going to be able to, you know, yeet it to go score the point. And that putting one, knowing that, hey, putting that attack on it there earlier would have given me the insurance against that one flip. Because ultimately, 
And this kind of comes down to understanding the, you know, it's some hand management thing. It's understanding the probability of the game, et cetera, however you want to put it. But being able to make sure that nothing relies solely on the outcome of one flip is an important lesson to learn. That, oh, this, that scoring that point came down to that one flip of the cards where there was definitely times earlier on in the game where I could have, you know, softened them up a little bit more or not had to rely on that singular flip. But I didn't. And that comes to the foresight on it there. Or I was putting the, for a lot of the game, Lazarus and the scout were nearby each other. And I was putting a lot of effort into hitting Lazarus and not a lot of effort into hitting the scout. And Lazarus was left on the table at the end of the game, right? Yeah, I don't think he ever got below half health. And so... Because he had shielded and armor too, like... And I put, I put effort into him. And it just was effort that I should have put that effort into the scout. And that would have been then, hey, I didn't... I wouldn't have had to rely on that single flip for to you know win or tie the game yeah knowing when that flip's going to come up there's literally no way to know that unless you know you have intuition on your cards and in that case you can do something to avoid that card but, or if you have an upgrade that, or, or, or an upgrade pact. yeah right? I, I actually well, wanted to i actually wanted I'm not to gonna ask. Put ancient pact on the hippity hop and that's and that's what i thought you know like that seems like a, a ridiculous thing but i could see people coming out of that taking that as the lesson is and and I, I did want to circle back to just even the list building thing is that you didn't take any upgrades, right? Like it was... There wasn't really room in this crew for that. And um, I, I do like Ancient Pact inside of, uh, you know, a Barkus crew or, you know, having some inhuman reflexes out there sometimes. But with the, with the pool and what I wanted to get accomplished... There just really just no wasn't room, room in there. And I mean, I had what? Six stones? Five, yeah. six stones. I think it was six stones, yeah. Yeah, but yeah. six stones. When assassinates in the pool, I like to have a little bit more stones. Yeah. And it just Makes felt sense. like to get the things accomplished that I needed to, uh, having those upgrades weren't going to pay off. And if I bring Ancient Pact, I like to put it on a minion because then I get that yeah. card drop. Yeah, or totally. on a master where it's the, hey, I have this one action that I want to be guaranteed to not Black Joker. Yeah, yeah. Counting on something like Ancient Pact for a damage flip late game where you could do a million other things doesn't make any sense. And so, yeah, okay, I just wanted to check on, on that. Especially though, on the totem. Make sure that, that I was reading <laughs> well, that right. yeah, I mean, th- that's a totem that takes forever to put down, but the, the Jackalope will die if you, you know, have ways to deny its uh, ability, deny its healing. But it's, you know, it, it's not a feels good because it's an enforcer. Uh, it's not really, you know, something that pri- prioritize putting that on. Right. But having that, uh, the, the major lesson was not the, oh, I should, you know, if only I didn't flip that black joker on that one flip. It's the no, no. I, if I did played it out differently, I wouldn't be relying on a single flip to turn the tide of the game like that. And that that's a tough lesson to learn that a lot of people I know 
don't really have that taking that step back and going, no, 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 I didn't, you know, lose the game because of that one flip. It was the, I had ever, I had tons of opportunities to not have to rely on a single flip. See, I just blame the physical deck itself when I throw it away and buy a new deck. That, that's I mean, I wasn't, using, I wasn't using the Cursed Fate deck. I, I have a, a Cursed Fate deck that Weird sent me that they have, His curse? Not, they have never denied that they cursed it before they sent it to me. Never denied. Right. They didn't deny it. I asked them if it was cursed. They said um, they didn't say it wasn't cursed. So uh, that's what it sounds like someone who'd send you a Cursed Fate deck would say. Yeah, that's what people say when they curse stuff. Exactly. But yeah, so that was a that was a definite lesson that I learned there was because to be honest, it's very easy to you get that big black joker or your opponent gets that big red joker at the worst possible time for you. It's easy to get salty on it and just see oh is it was outside of my it was outside of my control. If only it weren't for that deck. It's rare that that one flip couldn't have been mitigated by other actions taken at the right time. Yeah. And not yeah. getting salty over that is, uh, you know, cause I was a little bent out of shape right afterwards. And it's like, wait, no, think about it, Doug. You had every opportunity to. Yeah. No, you make some great points, Doug. And, uh, it's definitely something worth uh, keeping in mind for all of this stuff. So, um, uh, but one thing I want to get to real quick is uh, what was the total total uh, the final score and um, what what it how did it break out? So it ended up being six to six when everything shook out. That uh, I scored two off of cursed objects, two off of assassinate, and two off of spread them out. On uh, Nate, uh, they scored three off of cursed objects, two off of assassinate, and one off of spread them out. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, who was your MVP model? Uh, uh, during that game, ooh, not allowed to be the jackalope. It's not the jackalope. <laughs> well, the the funny thing is, the jackalope had been doing some work up there before that happened. The uh, jackalope had was putting the hurt on some other people up there, and then it's like, oh, I gotta go chase down that scout. You can't get away from me, and he did. So it wasn't the Jackalope, but the Jackalope is frequently, you know, MVP adjacent just because he's ridiculous and unexpected. I would say that Barkus himself ended up being the MVP. Fantastic. Just with the sheer amount of damage he can put out and um, his maneuverability, his adaptability, being able to leap and fly and put on the upgrades that he needs to when he needs them makes him a very versatile master. Yeah. And I mean, Barkus ended up taking down Von Schill. Barkus ended up taking down Yannick. And those are two big models for the game. Oh yeah. And so, you know what, even though he died, Barkus did great. Barkus is my boy, man. Heck yeah. Now this is a rare treat. So I'm going to ask Nate as well, because I'm kind of curious, Nate, what was your MVP model since it was a tight game on this one? Um, I think I have to go for, I think I have to say Hannah. Mm-hmm. Um, just okay. because Hannah scored me at least two of my, uh, cursed object points herself. Um, 
I'm not sure if she actually got the kill on Miranda, but she definitely put a lot of hurt on Miranda. Mm-hmm. Um, because being able to attack willpower with her, with the ancient words attack, um, getting around Miranda's uh, defensive positives, um, and then I believe she killed Farkas uh, Farkas on turn five. Yeah, she was. Which was which was my third point there. So. I think that was um, also that scored me my, my second player assassinate. So, fantastic. I think in terms of of how much work really got done, she was definitely uh, my MVP, and that is not unusual for her. Right, Hannah's an amazing model, pain in the ass to paint and assemble, but awesome. Pain on the in the table. ass to kill too, because I mean, oh yeah, it's so fun to copy the librarian's heel and oh have her God. heal herself. Just so much. <laughs> And, I mean, there That's was right. definitely healing going on there, and yeah, str- yep. strong agree on. She can also there. remove conditions on herself. She's great. Oh. Yeah. All right, so Doug, we're at the uh, the the end of the of, of the game. Uh, it was a tie score, and we're, we're looking for some advice here. Uh, so for for bottom third players, uh, do you have any advice for people facing um, uh, Barkus for the first time? Well, something you really want to watch out for going against Barkus, uh, and this is either Arcanist or Neverborn Barkus, is that aura he's got. Let me make sure I've got the right name for it because I don't. I, it's, it's that thing he does. That the forge so, aura, right? Yeah. So the severe terrain aura. So basically, around Barkus, there is a four-inch uh, aura that is treated as severe terrain. There's also, you cannot, he's got the, uh, so it's Wilds of Malfo, so the area within four is treated as severe terrain, and enemy models cannot be placed within four by enemy effects. So, you're gonna trying to get in on uh, Barkus. That's, I mean, four inches on a 40 mil base, that's a pretty large bubble of severe terrain. That to get to it, I mean, if you're trying to get to him, that is very rough. And he might end up throwing up um, some upgrades on him there. Um, and you can't place nearby, so you can't fly into it there. He's also got the ability of the uh, favorable terrain. This model is unaffected by severe terrain. While this model is in severe terrain or within one inch of impassable terrain, it has cover. So because he is literally always in severe terrain, he always has cover. So those are some little gotchas with Barkus to watch out for. Also, don't hesitate to ask your opponent what the upgrades on Marcus do. Because he's got five different upgrades, and they add a lot of extra abilities to the Chimera crew and make it a very flexible crew. And knowing, oh, right, this is the one I can't charge, or I can't see this one from six inches away. Oh, wait, that one's got butterfly jump. Oh, wait, and they switched around. And just familiarizing yourself with what the upgrades can do. Because the the Chimera crew is more than what's on their stat card. They really count on getting those upgrades out there. Right. Well, heck, that last bit of advice goes for middle and top tier players because it's constant. You're asking, wait, what's what's that one do? I'm going to charge this one then. Oh, that one has the same 
uh, upgrade. Shit, can't do that either. Yeah. So that that's definitely good advice. The the other got so the one got you to really watch out for against Neverborn Barkus, as I said, there is the mysterious emissary. So unless I have very specific reasons not to bring the emissary, if I'm running Barkus and Neverborn, have the emissary that is a move six model. It's got that move that attack which targets your movement. And if you're in severe terrain, you're on a negative flip. So Barkus can very much just leap into the middle of your crew, suddenly put all of your crew on negative flips against the, uh, it'll put all of your crew into severe terrain. And so then the emissary has got great ways to then target that and targeting the movement gets around a lot of deep, nasty defensive and willpower triggers. Mm-hmm. and various other defensive abilities and you're on negative against it so Absolutely. that is something to watch out for is if they're playing neverborn marcus or especially neverborn barcus watch out for that emissary fantastic now what about the middle tier middle third players that are uh, got some experience maybe they've uh placed uh played against some some maybe marcus one but uh uh what are some uh uh tips for them to overcome some of the things that that Barkus brings to the table? So figure out which beast he's bringing to the table. Each of the beasts kind of has their own little weak points there. If there's a lot of schemey stuff to do, he's going to bring a cat. That cat is going to, you know, interact, leap, interact, because that is a huge ability. If you're able to bring things uh, such as gravity well, that kind of locks down a little bit of an area where suddenly the beasts cannot leap into that or use wings because there's a lot of ways for the Chimera crew to do places on their movement. So you can have at least two models that gain flying. Plus there's, you know, the birds, which they fly anyways. And uh, Barkus has a leap. The Jackalope has a leap. The Sabertooth Cerberus has a leap. So if you're able to deny places, that is nice. Uh, some ruthless is also nice. Gotcha. Kind of okay. exploit the weakness. The beasts are not super strong. They're they're pretty squishy, unless they're you know right near Miranda. And I mean taking down take down Miranda early is great. Or if Miranda's right in their bubble, there having attacks that don't target defense. So willpower attacks or uh, size and movement attacks aren't great because they tend to have high movement and they're pretty beefy models. But willpower attacks are kind of the bane of my existence with the uh, kitty cats. Yeah, I hear you on that. Now, uh, top third, top tier players, uh, any advice for them uh, uh, to try to overcome some of the the strengths that uh, Barkus brings to the table? I think one of the really good ones was if Barkus is still near Miranda, kill Miranda first. Because otherwise she's going to activate and heal Miranda back up. And ultimately, Barkus is a more valuable model than Miranda is. So Nate did a great job just taking down Miranda and having Barkus outside, you know, I mean, Barkus went after the stuff there, but it was at a point where Miranda could not join up with him and 
taking that target priority there. Because outside of Miranda, Marcus doesn't have tear off a bite. Now, Marcus one does have tear off a bite. So he's always got the ability to heal himself up a little bit. Yeah. Um, there's also a lot of model, other models in the Chimera crew that have tear off a bite so they can, you know, heal you by killing you, which is delightful if you're him, but taking down, uh, taking down Marcus when he's either out of range or, uh, taking down Miranda first is great. Uh, getting them out of position from each other. If you've got stuff to get them outside of that four inches of each other that they're not able to pass off upgrades to each other. And if they are dropping the hazardous terrain on the board, if you're able to use that against them and knock them into their own hazardous, that hurts. Mm -hmm. Fantastic. Well, I appreciate that, Doug. Um, Any uh, plugs or parting thoughts uh, now that we've talked through the the game and and the lessons learned? Well, uh, yeah. So I'm, First parting thought, um, I want to thank uh, Ambrose for putting on a fantastic tournament. Honestly, when they announced the next uh, railroad, was what? Railroad Avenue Rampage. Go to it if you can. Uh, Aegis Games up there is a fantastic game store. The community up there was just wonderful. Uh, I was just impressed by the level of skill they have up there and just how nice everyone was. And plus Bellingham, God, that was a beautiful city. I've only ever been up to uh, Washington once before and I, I really love the area. So that was, it was, it was a delightful trip all around. So thank you for putting that on Ambrose. Um, as far as plugs go, Hey, I'm going to do the plug that I always do. We got the Lone Star Fodown Malifo GT coming up here in Houston, Texas. October 13th through the 15th. Uh, We're aiming to make this the largest event in Malifaux, not attached to a convention. As of recording this, we have, ooh, I don't even know how many states represented. We've got guys from Washington. We got people from California, Kansas, Massachusetts. We are international now. We have a ticket sold from Calgary. All right. We got territory. Don't forget uh, Dixon coming up from Puerto Rico. Oh, oh, that's right. I didn't realize Dixon was in Puerto Rico. Why did I not know this? Uh, He didn't used to be, but he is now. Yeah. Oh, he was in the Carolinas. We've got a great people coming to play from all over the country in a great game store. And if you register before August 25th, we have a custom fate deck that you get for free. If you register before August 25th. So come to the Lone Star Fodown and see if you have the biggest hats. Yeah, and somebody's got to knock Brian off his podium. They really do need to. Yeah, it, it, the, the, the thin air is getting to his big head. What, what you all need to do <laughs> is the uh, most recent episode we recorded, uh, obviously before this one, episode eight, the card management special. Oh, so good. Brian really laid it all on the table kind of gave a lot of the secrets to his success. And that is just being really, really good at card management. And heck, I mean, I was there to record it. I edited it. 
That's one I'm going to go back and listen to occasionally just to refresh myself on all the ways that I suck at card management. (laughs) (laughs) But that's the whole point of this show is leveling up, you know? So that's it. It really is. It really is. Well, fantastic. Well, thank you, Doug. Again, congratulations on, on the, on the win or the podium. Um, uh, I look forward to uh, joining you next year pending some peer pressure at the Bellingham tournament. So come to Washington. <laughs> so uh, appreciate it, buddy. Thank you. We have three active metas up here. Get up here. Yes, you've got the so you've got the the Bellingham one. You've got the one down in Seattle and the one up in Vancouver. Uh, down in Vancouver. Vancouver, Washington is on the south edge of the, of oh, the state. Oh, Vancouver, Washington. I thought guys came down from uh, Vancouver. Vancouver, BC is, in the, is on the north edge because that's literally next door in Canada. Did, didn't some players come down from Van, from Canada too? Uh, at least one. Okay. I know, I know yeah. Angel did. Oh, Angel came. Okay. Yes. There was, a, God, there was a solid group of players from all over the place. And I, had fought, I, there, I did not have a bad experience the entire weekend. I just had a blast. That's so cool. Yep. All right. Thank you all. We're out. Students of Conflict is brought to you by Top Dog Design. Check out topdogdesign.com for all of your Malfo terrain needs. Top Dog Design, 3D printable designs to enhance your tabletop. Students of Conflict is not an official product of Weird Miniatures LLC. All intellectual property belonging to Weird Miniatures is used with permission. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views or positions of entities they represent. Any content provided by our guests and or hosts are their opinion and not intended to malign any group, club, organization, company, individual, or anyone or anything. Woo! My brain is made of pudding, apparently. Beast mode!